You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters because accounting matters. This is Adam Olson, Embark's accounting advisory national practice leader, and you're listening to Accounting Matters. We're kicking off the second part of our special series recapping key messages from this year's AICPA conference on current SEC and TCAOB development. I'm welcoming back to the podcast studio, Jana Gregory, who's a director in our capital markets practice. Jana, welcome back to the, to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be on well, today. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad to have you here. And I know we're here today to talk specifically about uh, a lot of the SEC priorities that they highlighted, key takeaways that members of the staff um, emphasized, comment letter trends, et cetera. A lot of stuff there, right? And the SEC was a uh, a, a key player throughout the conference, highlighting a lot of different things that we'll touch on today. But before we get into that, I'm, I, I, you know, maybe just from your thoughts uh, from attending the conference this year, uh, you know, what kind of stood out to you? Any kind of key takeaways, maybe for people that weren't able to attend that you'd like to share? Yeah, I think really for me, the theme of the conference seemed to be around transparency and really the focus on what investors need to know from a protection standpoint and also what investors want to know, what they're actually asking for. And it's clear um, whether it's the SEC or the FASB or even the PCAOB, that sort of seems to be the trend throughout. It's what is the best way to continue changing rules, changing codification, changing standards to ultimately achieve that goal. So that that really stood out to me because that was just a common sentiment throughout every session. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's... uh... It was, you know, we had a lot of different topics that were discussed, but like, if you really kind of step back and look high level, like they were echoing a lot of the same sentiments and even among different groups of panelists and things like that. And, you know, whether that was intentional or not, um, mm-hmm. it, it, it definitely was, was felt throughout the conference. So I, I think that's a, a very fair point. So let's just pivot back then. So today, specifically focusing in on just some of the things that the SEC highlighted. Um, throughout the conference. And I know we we kicked off the conference itself with kind of a keynote remark from um, Commissioner Pierce, who, who spoke at, at the beginning of the conference. And, you know, she she really had a lot to say in, in her opening remarks, but anything that kind of stood out to you specifically that uh, Commissioner Pierce kind of put forth just to kick off the conference and the tone of the conference? Yeah, so I think um, one of the commissioner's remarks about um, you know, right now, when capital markets were in kind of a slow drought period, um, the company shouldn't use this time to take their foot off the pedal and really should be using this time to prepare. And I think that, you know, that's a sentiment that I think accounting advisors in the capital market space across different firms, including us, you know, that is something we're encouraging our clients to do because for so many years, it's been, all right, you want to IPO in six months, go start doing all the preparation now. But I think right. the commissioner was really encouraging companies to, especially smaller companies that maybe haven't beefed up a lot of their processes, maybe have a lot of room to grow, um, to be realistic about what it means to be a public company and use use this time to actually prepare. Yeah, I mean, I think she she was real, <laughs> real direct in her words, like, if you want to be a public company, you need to act like a public company. And I think that messaging was clear for sure. I know she also talked a bit about just like regulations in general. And I know, you know, just kind of her, her viewpoint on, you know, 
the FCC's role in regulations and, and making sure that we aren't over-regulating the capital markets too much to where it becomes, um, you know, I, I guess more of a challenge for certain market participants. Maybe they'll be able to act, enter the capital markets. And so just making sure that barriers aren't being aren't being set up as it relates to increased regulations and, and making sure that the FCC isn't kind of over-engineering things as well. I know was a sentiment that she shared that that stood out to me as well. Yeah. Uh, so, so shortly after she spoke, then we we heard next from another key player with the FCC. So Paul Munter, you know, the, the acting chief accountant of, of the FCC, um, he spoke on day one too. And I think he kind of alluded to a lot of what you said was was around making sure that any rulemaking, standard setting, it, it's really all through the lens of giving investors better information, more meaningful information, more decision useful information. Uh, anything from his opening remarks as well that kind of stood out to you that you thought was worth highlighting? Yeah, I, I thought his remarks were really insightful. Um, one thing that I thought was really interesting, so he talked about some of something specifically that investors are asking for more of, which is disaggregation. So yeah. disaggregation in terms of expense components, you know, disaggregating the face of the income statement, disaggregating segment disclosures, maybe even some cash flow information, how investors actually benefit more from the direct cash flow method, um, which most companies do not do not use that method. Um, but an interesting comment he made was that technically right now, the codification and the SEC rules don't actually prevent a company from disaggregating information further or over disclosing or giving more information. Um, and so, you know, he encouraged companies to ask themselves, is there something we could be doing now to help improve information for investors without just waiting for a rulemaking body to require that disaggregation or that additional disclosure? So yeah. I just thought that was an interesting remark because it is, it is true in practice. Typically, you're just you're trying to meet the requirements. You're not trying to go beyond the requirements a lot of the time. Um, so I, th I thought that was an interesting remark from him. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think there was a lot of times people are on the sidelines about, you know, being told what they should do or shouldn't do. But if you're really, if the, the goal of what you're trying to achieve is to provide more meaningful information to the users of your financial statements, and you have the power to do that now, just by pro providing that additional layer of detail, why not do it? Obviously, there's, there's non-gap measurement rules you got to kind of stay in the bounds of, but like, absent that True. type of stuff, you really, you do have quite a bit of flexibility to actually do some of that. And I, you know, the cash flow thing that you mentioned was one great example where he was like, you know, probably aren't going to move mountains with people doing direct method cash flow because nobody does it. Um, but, you know, that there's nothing to prevent you from sharing some of those direct cash flow disclosure related items, you know, with your indirect cash flow, just because it does provide that additional layer of um, insight for investors and other users. So. Thought those were definitely good remarks there um, that he that he mentioned as well. I know day two actually was kind of probably the the meat, I guess, of the FCC. So that's where we we really heard from more more of the you know the FCC's division of corporate finance, you know, more loosely known as Corp Fin. So we had a, a large panel discussion there where you know they they kind of walked through their you know their division, what they do, kind of the role they play. Um, some key reminders around their role, you know, obviously they're there to review and provide guidance on disclosures outside the financial statements with filings and 
Um, you know, they, they issue their own interpretations and, and rules on things, but they're also a big component of them is to also review, obviously, public company filings, and they kind of reemphasize the, the, the timeline of reviews there and that, you know, every public registrant is going to, you know, at least be reviewed, you know, once every three years. And so, you know, there were comments in there. I think they had some Q&A early on where people were like, how do we know if we've been reviewed or not been reviewed? And I think they kind of like jokingly said like, well, if you haven't gotten a comment in the last three years, you were probably were reviewed at some point and we just didn't <laughs> have anything to raise. So I thought that was funny, but they, they also did go in to say um, that a lot of the, I don't want to call it problems per se, but maybe like the top issues that's at the center of Fort Finn are are a lot of the similar, you know, repeat customers, if you want to call it that. So mm -hmm. they highlighted MDNA and non-gap measurements as kind of two key areas. What are some of the like key takeaways that, that you recall, like let's start with MDNA that um, stood out to you that Corpman wanted to, to have as kind of key reminders or takeaways as it relates to MDNA? Yeah, so for MDNA, I, I think they touched on a few different specific areas of MDNA, I guess. With, with flux analysis and where you're describing kind of the year over year or period over period, period over period drivers for changes in line items, they mentioned, you know, it's not sufficient to just say the line items move because of X, Y, and Z, but you actually need to be quantifying the X, Y, and Z and quantifying those material factors, um, indicating if there were any offsets so that it's really actually use, useful information for an investor and not just qualitative drivers. Yep. Um, and then for critical accounting estimates, that was another one. Um, and I think we've, we've seen this kind of, this is, this is consistent thing, consistent thing over year over year, but that the critical accounting estimates section of MDNA shouldn't just be regurgitating the, what's in the financial statements. Um, right. and so they said, if the disclosure is only letting investors know that that critical estimate exists, that's not sufficient. It has to be this is a critical estimate and this is there's some here are some numbers around it or here's how that estimate is sensitive if we change some key methods and assumptions because here's how that estimate's going to change yeah um, and I, and on that that note i would just add like i think she had you know it, um corp finn rather had kind of laid out some questions that like registrants should think about when they're you know thinking about their critical estimates you know, accounting estimate disclosures. And one is like, you know, step back and look at your disclosure and be like, does what I have kind of laid out here, can an investor really understand one, why this estimate's even critical from what I've described? Um, you know, has the estimate been quantified? You know, what is it? Is there clear on like what the quantification based on? Is it amounts? Is it percentages? And then like, Kind of like what you alluded to is just around sensitivity. Does an investor understand why the estimate itself is so sensitive and what could potentially cause those changes to the estimate? I don't, you know, those were like, I mean, they seem like the basic questions, but I think a lot of times people are so used to just like rinsing and repeating some disclosures and just mm -hmm. trying to like check a box that they they lose sight of just the ability to provide that that next layer of, of good information. Yeah. And I think with that, on that same sort of sentiment, the there was some Q&A about what are, what are preparers missing? Why is this constantly a high area of comment? Are we missing something or is this just the SEC, a case of the SEC always wanting more from us? Um, right. And I feel like that gets back to what you were just saying that Corp Finn said, you know, this is the reason this continues to be a high area of comment is because the purpose is to actually provide an analysis on trends and uncertainties. And so 
trends and uncertainties, whether it be company specific or macroeconomic, those are always changing and always evolving. So the nature of their comments are always evolving too. Um, right, right. They talked about the Russia-Ukraine conflict and how and that and how maybe that should be making its way into MDNA and inflation and and so on. Right. So great great points for sure is that trends and uncertainties evolve and so does MDNA and inherently what the FCC focuses on as it relates to MDNA. So it all kind of goes hand in hand. I know they spent you know, quite a bit of length as well, talking about non-GAAP measurements. Uh, what were some of the, the key takeaways you, you recall from just the non-GAAP measurement perspective? Well, so one thing they kind of Corpin started off with right away was letting everybody know about some late breakers. <laughs> yeah. Not late breaking, but, but some new news. All the accountants were excited. Um, some new compliance and disclosure interpretations they had just released. Um, and the purpose of those is really to give everyone a picture of what the staff is considering when they're reviewing non-GAAP measures. And they caution that those CNDIs are meant to be meant to be illustrative and not necessarily comprehensive or specific to every company. But but they went into a bit more detail about the focus of those CNDIs. And it's really around the staff when they're reviewing non-GAAP measures, they're thinking about whether or not any information or any ratios would be misleading and whether anything's being backed out or adjusted that really re- represents a normal and recurring item yeah. that's necessary to operate the business. So they went into they went into a lot of that in detail and gave examples, um, talked about how they think about a company's operations, their industry, how they generate revenue, um, their business strategies, when they're thinking about what might actually be normal and recurring. Yep. No, I, I agree. I thought, thought they did a pretty good job of kind of walking through those new CNDIs and, um, you know, really explaining the purpose and what they're, I mean, I think some people view it's like, oh, now there's more stuff we have to follow or abide by, but really like the, the intent and purpose behind it is just to clarify, provide more examples and hopefully make application of this, you know, the non-GAAP measurement guidance easier because it is an area that continues to be a high focus of comments that are issued um, through co- the comment letter process for registrants as well. Um, I guess one other area that, you know, they, they tended to focus on as well was around segments. I think that's another area that tends to kind of creep back into um, a key focus for the SEC itself. You know, they had mentioned that when they've got comments on uh, kind of segment reporting or determination of segments or whatever the nature of the, the issue may be for a registrant, it tends to be probably the more challenging one to overcome and to resolve with with the registrant itself. And they continue to kind of see that. And, you know, obviously the guidance around segment reporting has not really changed. There is a current project in the works for the FASB around disaggregation that we talked about earlier. But, you know, for how a company determines its segments, that guidance hasn't changed. And so it's really the application of that guidance that I think the staff continues to, to highlight as being an area where, uh, maybe there's some disagreement or some lack of clarity about how companies determine what are their actual segments, um, in particular, even when companies determine that they only have one operating segment. So I know a few things they highlighted that I thought were kind of interesting is, and important for preparers to keep in mind is that, you know, you kind of have to think about, I think a lot of times historically people think about the package that the CODM gets, and that's like really what drives more or less like what where there's discrete financial information and what they're using to make decisions to determine those those operating segments. But 
the SEC is also, you know, looking at other things that the company is doing and whether there's kind of conflicting or contradictory pieces of information that's being used or talked about that doesn't actually align with how a company's determined its segment. So, you know, they mentioned things around like listening in on how things are described during earnings calls or press releases, if you're referring to different uh, branches or divisions or product lines or things like this that somehow don't make their way into the determination of a company segment, that could potentially raise a red flag. And so I thought that was interesting as well, just like they provided some examples there, really focusing on that you got to think about the total mix of information that the CODM gets, you know, especially in today's day and age where information is so easily shareable. There's like dashboard reporting and there's all sorts of stuff that you can get a lot of data very easily if you wanted. Um, and so just with that very data intensive reporting intensive environment that we live in is really just maybe stepping back and making sure that companies have their their segments identified correctly. I know they also walked into some of the the more recent rulemaking they have. Um, so one area they they touched on was kind of the recent pay versus performance rules that have come out. And so obviously there's additional disclosures that are attached with that rule. Um, but any like any of the comments that they made around that new kind of pay versus performance rule that you, you think is worth highlighting? Yeah, I think the one really important point would be around um, any equity awards being revalued to fair to fair value at each reporting date. And so that would be different from US GAAP in the financial statements for equity classified awards because you would just have the grant date fair value and you don't revalue those awards unless there's been a modification or something. Um, but that, that was a good reminder. And then they also kind of provided some additional clarity around the implementation of that and said that they would generally expect that fair value to be based on the same principles in the ASC 718, so the, the standard for stock-based comp. Um, and just yep. as an example, so the expected term assumption in an option pricing model needs to needs to be compliant with US GAAP, um, right. even though it's even though you're revaluing it at each date specifically for those SEC rules. Yeah, no, I think those are great points, and and particularly around just because I think for some people when they read the rule and then if they do think about the gap, they're like these don't align. So inherently, what it potentially creates is you know, the need for a lot of companies to essentially have to continue to create a recurring measurement process and valuation for those, those equity classified awards, similar to like liability classified awards that they may, they may have under US GAAP. It's, it'll be necessary just to comply with this, this disclosure rule. All right, so let's move on to, to day three. So like the SEC uh, discussion obviously didn't stop with day two, even though it was a lot of great content on day two, but we, we opened up day three with uh, another panel from the SEC that really kind of focused on comment letters and the comment letter process and really kind of highlighted, um, you know, the panel was highlighting more or less what type of topics produced, you know, the largest number of comments during the year. And so it really ties back to, quite frankly, to what, you know, you were highlighting um, as part of that day two discussion around like MDNA continues to be an area where, you know, a lot of comments are raised, non-gap measurements as well. Uh, but I think one other one that kind of stood out that I thought was interesting as well is uh, they had an attorney from the SEC that was basically emphasizing that more recently that the, the SEC has been issuing um, more comments specifically on climate disclosures. Um, and obviously, 
that the comments that they're asking or the questions that they're raising in this comment letter process, they're not tied to the SEC's climate rule that is in proposal right now because that hasn't been issued. Um, but it really is based on some existing guidance. And I think there was a kind of a call to action just to remind people at the conference about some of that old guidance that had been issued. So there was guidance issued back in uh, 2010 that really was, you know, really just some general commission guidance about disclosures related to climate change. So I think there was an emphasis there to just kind of revisit that, make sure that um, you're meeting all of the requirements there. And then they also highlighted, again, another one of their dear issuer letters. So, you know, I think we'll we'll hear about these dear issuer letters in a lot of our kind of our special um, episodes in this series, because I think the SEC was very pointed on saying, reminding people, hey, we went to the trouble of creating these kind of sample comment letters for you to read. And then I think they are very insightful and helpful because they they do, you know, they tell you about the types of things that the SEC is going to be looking for on a particular topic or issue um, and provide, you know, really good examples of the types of comments you could expect potentially. And so it really kind of just opens up um, an additional layer of insight for what to look out for for registrants as they prepare their filing. But maybe one thing I know there was a there was a panel as well or a participant on the panel that was talking about the comment letter process. Um, that was also providing it more from the preparer side. So obviously we heard from the SEC in that comment letter process that, um, you know, they had a CAO on the panel as well that was saying like, hey, I, I'm on the other side of the, the comment letter process mm -hmm. where I'm the one that's having to figure out how to respond and, and work with the SEC on resolving any comments that are raised. Uh, so maybe you can share just some kind of key takeaways that she highlighted for someone that maybe going through a comment letter process either now or in the future, they're an SEC registrant or planning to become one just so they can understand what are some best practices. Yeah, her, her first piece of advice was, and she's a CAO of a, of a registrant, like you said, and her first piece of advice is to manage the comments like a pro, just like you would any other project where you're assigning responsible parties, right? When you get the comments and you see three comments relate to the business section, three comments relate to MD&A, assigning out those responsible parties and then also making sure there's time for lawyer or counsel review of all those responses. She also emphasized that all, all numbers in the responses need to be supportable. You would think that's kind of understood, but I mean, I, I appreciated her, uh, her addressing that. And, and also she mentioned that for her company, um, they're writing a lot of technical accounting memos all of the time because they want to be prepared. They want to already have they're, they want to be prepared and already be able to support their position and know why they took a certain position uh, before they get that comment from the SEC. And then in final yep. kind of best advice she gave was uh, just a reminder to not, not necessarily just email the staff with whatever you're thinking, because um, anything you write to, this, to the SEC staff could become public information. So to just have a united front on the, the company side, um, Get your ducks in a row and be be prepared to address the comments collectively as a team. Yeah, no, I think those are all great points and, and and you know good reminders for for anyone that's going through that process just to keep in mind. Um, never a fun process, but you know obviously a little preparation and um, just having some organization with the the response will help hopefully resolve the comments faster and get your company cleared so that you can uh, you can essentially move on. So I, I think the last thing maybe to just wrap up that I'll, I'll highlight on this is, you know, there was a kind of a closing section around just like enforcement action. 
Um, so the FTC always kind of ends with that. So they bring in their division of enforcement and they, you know, they tend to highlight a bunch of different cases, um, you know, both for preparers and registrants, but they also highlight things, you know, related to audit firms and other, other, uh, participants in, in FCC filings and FCC regulatory rulemaking, focusing specifically on um, just kind of accounting and reporting matters. I thought, you know, there were a couple things they highlighted as being kind of key enforcement actions. So, you know, there were, they highlighted several cases of, you know, where there were, you know, revenue recognition um, issues or mistakes. So whether it was prematurely recognizing revenue, they also highlighted examples of kind of like you know, a fake sale or whatever. So obviously, you know, doing something inappropriate there. And then another was just around just overall material, you know, misstatements and enforcement action being brought there. And that's essentially, and in that case, it wasn't necessarily anything specific they focused on, like they could point to, but basically said it may just be due to lack of just proper diligence and controls and due care um, for those registrants. And so, just highlighting a couple of those things. I thought they also, you know, were kind of forceful in their messaging, just emphasizing some of the sizable fines um, that have been levied. You know, so I think they highlighted in their um, kind of in their stats around enforcement collections and that in 2022 alone, they essentially collected $6.4 billion in enforcement penalties, um, which is a large number, obviously. And I think that, <laughs> I think the, the intent here is they want to definitely signal that the FCC enforcement division is serious. They are here to deter misconduct. They want to ensure that, you know, we've got good public trust and that um, people recognize that these enforcement actions are just essentially solidifying that the FCC is, is you know, they're, they're very serious about these matters and and they want to they want people to believe in, in in the process and the regulatory value that they bring. So I thought thought that was interesting itself. Um, and and also that was kind of interesting too that like of that six point four billion, I think four billion of it was they were civil penalties, um, you know, alone that were related to that. So um, you know, it's probably a, a trend that's going to continue. And I know you know throughout the conference they talked about transparency, the need for better financial reporting. There was a lot of economic uncertainty. There's a lot of focus going on around pressures that companies are facing. So, uh, you know, hopefully people are doing the right thing, but the FCC, you know, like their division of enforcement is also, you know, they're keeping a close eye on things and, and making sure that there's, um, you know, no discrepancies or no, um, you know, no, no issues in what they're seeing with registrants. All right. Well, I think that's a, a good pause for today. Anna, thanks again for uh, for joining me on the discussion around the FCC priorities and key takeaways. For appreciate you sharing your insights. Thank you. Uh, for our listeners, uh, just a sneak peek for episode three. We'll be kind of shifting gears here from the FCC perspective, and then talking a bit more about some of the FASB's priorities and some of the the insights that uh, members of the FASB shared at the conference as well. So encourage everyone to, to tune back into that episode and hear more about that. Um, but in the meantime, I want to thank everyone for listening to another episode of Accounting Matters, and we'll see you around. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. 
Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.